Good morning and welcome to our morning service. Good to have you here this morning. Good to be able to gather together to worship the Lord on the Lord's Day. We do uh, welcome those who are joining us on Zoom this morning as well. And today we welcome Pastor Jesse Bartz with us. Uh, thankful that uh, the church where he is in Toronto, Ennerdale Baptist Church in North York, uh, well, allowed him to take a little bit of time on this Lord's Day to come to us, and we just appreciate that very much. Again, we're glad to have Pastor Jesse with us this morning. He will come now and lead us in prayer, if you would, Pastor. Well, brothers and sisters, let's look to the Lord at this time. Father, we thank you for the truth that we can celebrate and we can consider at this time of year and, and really every time of year. We thank you for your great grace toward us. Thank you that you sent your son to live and to die for us. We thank you for Jesus, the one who came, God in the flesh, the one who became man without ceasing to be God, to live and die for us. Rise triumphant over the grave and sin, ascend for us. And we look and long for his return, just as certainly as he came in fulfillment of the prophecies, he will come in fulfillment of prophecies. So this season, help us both to look back and forward, remembering his great grace in his first coming, remembering that he will come again to receive us to himself, that where he is, there we may, there we may be also. Help us then to live in light of that great grace that we have been given. Help us to seek to share the message this season, to live in light of the grace that we have received. Lord, this morning we pray for all who are here in attendance and those who are unable to be with us. We ask that you, by your spirit, through your word, would open our eyes to your truth. Remind us of precious truths. Perhaps we, we already know these truths, but drive them deeper into our souls and may we live in light of their reality. We recognize our need of you. We recognize our need of the Spirit. Unless you work by your Spirit in our hearts, we recognize that we will not truly understand or even apply your word. And so we plead with you today to do that work in us. We pray that our worship together in song would be acceptable in your sight for Jesus sake. And Lord, I pray that as you work in us, as you accomplish your purposes in us, that we would be quick to give you all of the glory. And this we pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Again, welcome, Pastor Jesse, and Lord bless as you open the book. Well, brothers and sisters, I invite you to join with me in Genesis chapter 3 this morning. Genesis chapter 3. I want to read the first 15 verses of Genesis chapter 3. Please follow along in your copy of God's word as I read. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. The serpent said unto the woman, 
you shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened. Ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman had, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. The Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field, upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And verse 15 is what I would like us to focus on this morning. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Well, a couple years ago, I took the time to listen to a radio station in the city that basically said, starting sometime in November, from then on, they were only going to play Christmas songs. And it was one of these pop stations. I listened to it for several days. I did it so you don't have to. <laughs> and I, and I, was, I was doing this because I was interested to think of, to, to see how Christmas is seen in our culture. So here's this pop uh, radio station. What kind of songs are they going to play in keeping with Christmas? What does our culture think of Christmas songs? And then by extension, what does our culture think of Christmas? And of course, there were songs about snow and sledding and sleigh bells and Santa and gifts and stockings by the fire. But on this station, at least, and I listened for several days, I did not hear any songs about Christ. I'm assuming, of course, that all I want for Christmas is you is not referring to Jesus. That's a safe assumption, I think. Here we have Christmas song after Christmas song and no Christ. And I think that's a reflection of the larger culture. We have a Christmas, as it were, without Christ. Well, today I want to focus on Christ. And I want to think about that very first promise of Jesus in the scriptures. This promise we see in chapter 3 and verse 15. I will put enmity between thee and the woman. God says to the snake, to the serpent, that old dragon, Satan, and between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. And of course, we know the storyline, I think, to this point. God created everything and it was very good. He rests in perfect fellowship with the creation that he has made. 
Eden is the place of perfection. And yet, there in this garden, we see this act of rebellion. Eve is deceived, gives the fruit to her husband who is not deceived. He takes and deliberately eats of this fruit in opposition to God himself. But I want to think about this promise that God makes. And what God says here in chapter 3, verse 15. Think about what truth we find here and then apply it to our lives. So let's think about a few truths that we see just here in verse 15. First truth that I think is very obvious is that there will be personal enmity between Satan and Eve. We see, of course, that in the opening portion of verse 15. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman. That word enmity is a word that could be translated hostility. It also has tones of warfare to it. There is then this enmity between Eve and Satan. And there would be this enmity between Eve and Satan for her entire life. I'll come back to this in a moment, but sisters, Satan is no friend to you. And there are many things that Satan through culture would say to you today that are not for in your best interests. Even as he would say things to all of us that are not in our best interests. But we see first that there is personal enmity between Satan and Eve. But even beyond that, we see that there will be corporate enmity between Satan's descendants and Eve's descendants. We see this in the second portion of the verse. He says, I'll put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. Now, of course, we understand that this is speaking in spiritual terms rather than physical terms. Satan does not have physical descendants, but there will be enmity between the spiritual descendants of Satan, those who are of their father, the devil, and those who are spiritual descendants of Eve. There will be enmity between the righteous and the wicked. And this struggle is revealed, of course, in the very next chapter of Genesis. See the conflict between Cain and Abel. And that conflict will continue. In 1 John, John tells us, 1 John chapter 3, verses 10 to 13, in this, the children of God are manifest, or they're revealed, they're shown, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. For this is the message that ye heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother. Wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil, and his brother's righteous. And then Jesus may, or John makes the point, marvel not if the world hates you. This is the kind of hostility that is to be expected, and it goes all the way back to the garden. There's going to be corporate enmity between the seed of Satan and the seed of the woman. Jesus would say the same thing. He would speak of this distinction, this difference between the children of Satan 
and those who are of God. He said, if God were your father, you would love him, or you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Even because ye cannot hear my word. Ye are of your father, the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his, or he speaketh, speaks from his own resources of deception. For he is a lie and the father of it. We see this same truth echoed in the book of Revelation. We see the very dramatic picture of the woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet. And she is with child, and she brings forth a child. And we won't go into all the imagery there, but Christ is brought forth. And what happens? Well, the dragon is in conflict with the child, wants to destroy the child. We know that the child is Jesus because it's described as the child who is to rule all nations with a rod of iron. In chapter 12, verse 17, the we see that the enmity is not just between the dragon and Christ, between Satan and Christ. But we see a bigger application of it because in 12, 17, it says the dragon was wroth or angry with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So there is personal enmity between Satan and Eve. There's enmity between Satan and humanity. But there is a corporate and spiritual enmity between Satan's offspring, Satan's people, and God's. But this passage not only teaches that there's personal enmity between Eve and Satan and corporate enmity between the seed of Satan and the seed of the woman, but that there will be ultimate victory over Satan by Eve's descendant. And this is where we get this glimpse forward, looking forward to Jesus. Look at it with me again back in chapter 3, verse 15 of Genesis. I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. That it there could also be translated with the personal pronoun he. He shall bruise your head, Satan. You will bruise his heel. But notice how the wording changes. The beginning of the verse, you have personal terms. I will put enmity between thee and the woman. Personal terms. Then it expands to corporate between thy seed and her seed. And then it contracts again. He shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. There is a certainty in this statement. The certainty is, he shall bruise thy head. He shall do this. There is a finality to this. He will bruise thy head. Some of you Bible readers know that this word bruise can also mean crush. To have your head crushed is death, defeat. You might remember the story in the book of Judges 
where the woman throws the millstone off the tower. It's, I, I, I've always wondered about that story. That must have been quite the woman. Not only to toss a millstone, but to take it to the top of the tower. That, uh, that would have been impressive. But, but the, the, the millstone comes down, crushes his head. And he says, well, you know, run me, run me through with the sword because I don't want it said that I was killed by a woman. You get your head crushed, that's death. Satan may be dangerous and deadly, but he is defeated. There's a certainty to this. There's a finality to this. But there's also an agony to this that we see. It, he, Jesus, shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. I had a little affliction the other day. I forget what the what the name of it is, but you have these tendons that run around the bottom of your foot and then they attach into your heel. And I had this issue where uh, the tendons were inflamed and, and stretched or something, and it was in constant pain. Every step was was painful. It wasn't particularly fun. As I get older, I have a whole lot, whole lot of aches and pains. And I know that some of you don't think I'm that old, but I my body disagrees. I got a lot of miles on me. So every step was agony. Of course, to have your heel crushed is incredibly painful. The very act which would crush the serpent's head would also bruise the one who crushed it. We look at this in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and we don't see the clarity of this. But as we read forward, and we see how it is that Jesus brings that defeat to Satan. We see that Satan is fully and finally defeated at the cross. So it really does matter whose side you're on. Satan is a defeated foe. So these are simple truths. I think we all know. We've all heard these before. But I want to think together about some application of these truths to our own hearts and lives. First of all, brothers and sisters, and I say this very solemnly, we must seriously and intentionally remember the enmity of the enemy. We must seriously and intentionally remember the enmity of the enemy. He really is our enemy. He is not our friend. No matter what Satan would promise, no matter what he might say could be better for us if we would follow his way instead of God's, he is our enemy. He is not our friend. Some of you might know the name, some of you that are into history might know the name of Henri-Philippe Pétain, the French general in World War I. Pétain actually was born in a peasant's home back when that actually really mattered and there was that class of citizen in France. And when World War I began, he was a 58-year-old colonel, kind of a lowly colonel in the army. And yet, as the war unfolded, Pétain showed some incredible leadership skills and made some very wise decisions and was able to be very instrumental in stopping the German advance into French territory. And over the course of World War I, 
the Great War, he rose in the ranks until the point where he actually became the commander of the French troops. After World War I was finished, he was very instrumental in building a line of defenses between uh, Germany and France called the Maginot Line, forts and so forth. And he was, he was a war hero. Then World War II came along. In World War II, Catan did lead the resistance at first as the Germans began to come into French territory, but it became very obvious very quickly in the Second World War that France would lose. And long story short, France did fall to the Germans. And at that point, Patin declared himself the leader of France, but in particular Vichy France. He became a collaborator with the Germans, the same enemies that he had fought in World War I, the same ones that he had been so brave in standing against. And as the war unfolded, he would come to adopt Nazi policies to the point where he would even engage in the persecution and the mistreatment and the murder of the Jewish people, the Jewish French people. Tom forgot who the enemy was. Don't forget who the enemy is. The one who once stood bravely against the forces of the Germans would become an instrument in their hands. The one who fought side by side with the Jewish people in the First World War against the Germans would in time come to be their enemy who ought to have been on, his, who ought to have been on their side. Brothers and sisters, do not forget who the enemy is. Satan is not your friend. He is an enemy of all of humanity, and he is an enemy of Christ and people of Christ in particular. Because he is an enemy and he is not for us but against us, we ought to be wise about his devices. We could talk a lot about this, but let me give you just four ways in which Satan works. So that we must be aware he's not our friend. Remember the enmity of the enemy. First, we know that Satan deceives. He is, Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, the one who deceiveth the whole world. He is a deceiver. Satan may seem very plausible in the wisdom of this age when he contradicts God's word, but he is a deceiver. He is, as we, read, as we read Jesus' words earlier, he is a, the father of lies. When he speaks lies, he's speaking from his own resources. He is a liar. Do not be deceived by Satan. Not only does he deceive, he divides. He is very happy to divide. He is very happy to divide the people of God. Satan, the word Satan means adversary. Devil, the word from which we get devil, means accuser or slanderer. Thus, Satan 
will seek to get brothers and sisters to bite and devour one another, in Paul's words to Galatians. He says, if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed of one another. Satan is happy to divide. Be careful. Be careful what you listen to. Be careful to what you speak about your brother or sister. Be careful for your attitude towards your brother or sister. Satan takes all kinds of opportunities to divide the people of God. And listen, we can be siblings without being twins. Right? Not every Christian is going to look exactly the same way and and have exactly the same beliefs on every point of doctrine. There are fundamental doctrines which we must not compromise. But there are other things on which Christians over the years have disagreed and still loved each other. May we be that kind of people, remembering that they can be our siblings without being our twins. And we're kind of learning that at our church. We are renting our church uh, in the mornings to another congregation, and they're very different than we are. They're, they're younger, they're more affluent than we are on the whole. They, are, uh, they have a different style of musical worship. They have a different style of style than we have. They're a lot cooler than we are. But we love them. We serve the same Lord. We preach the same gospel. Are we going to do church the same way? No, but we love them. We're grateful for them. And there are people that they are able to reach that we aren't, and vice versa. It's not to say that differences don't matter. It's just to remember that we are brothers and sisters. And that there are things that really, really matter in the scope of our service to Christ. So Satan will deceive Satan will divide. Satan also loves to distract. He loves to distract. Satan would love to take our focus off of what is truly important and put it on lesser things and have us expend our energy and our effort and our life on things that ultimately are not of the greatest importance. It's a good reminder to us that we should not love the world or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. All that is in the world is passing away. All passing away. But isn't that where Satan would like us to turn our focus? To have this entirely earthbound focus, just the things of this world, Forgetting about eternity, forgetting about spiritual, the spiritual realm, forgetting about our soul. What would a prophet, Jesus said, if we gain the whole world and lose our soul? So Satan loves to distract us. By the way, when John makes the contrast that this world is passing away and it's lust thereof, but the one who does the will of the Father abides forever, he's, he's making a massive contrast there. When he talks about the things of this world, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life, that's the sort of spiritual things he's talking about. The contrast is that those things are passing away 
The one who does the will of the Father abides forever. The contrast is as great as heaven and hell. That's the contrast there. All of those things that the world lives for, those lust and pride, they're passing away. They will one day end up in perdition. But the one who does God's will, the one who has trusted in Christ, that one will live forever. And so remember that Satan would love to distract us, so live for eternal values and be alert to his distracting influence. Ultimately, Satan destroys. That's what he wants to do. He's a destroyer. He's a murderer. Jesus said you've been a murderer from the... Jesus says that Satan was a murderer from the beginning. Satan is a destroyer. Satan promises life. He promises joy. He promises all of these things, but he is a murderer. Brothers and sisters, as we remember this oracle in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, this wonderful promise of Christ, don't forget the enmity of the enemy. He's not your friend. And if I could build on that, don't go down with the defeated. Don't go down with Satan. There are things that perhaps I have followed and things that that I enjoy that regularly let me down. Cue your Maple Leafs jokes now. (laughs) There seems to be a constant theme of defeat that uh, attends the Maple Leafs. Even when you think that things are going well, it, uh, somehow they managed to pull defeat from the jaws of victory. And uh, sometimes my friends joke with me about being a Maple Leafs fan because of the futility of it all. Well, it's quite one thing to be a fan of the Maple Leafs. It's quite another thing to follow Satan. It's quite another thing to be of his seed. It's quite another thing to be of your father, the devil, instead of trusting in Christ as your savior. Satan may be dangerous and destructive, and he is, but he is defeated and doomed. Satan has already lost. Say, well, how how is it that Satan has already lost if he's so active, he's still active today? You've just warned us about how he's an enemy and how he has all these devices. How is it that he has lost? Well, again, if we might think back to a war illustration, there are different historical views on when it was that Adolf Hitler actually lost the war in the sense that he reached a point where the war was completely unwinnable. And there are different views on that, but one that is certain is that once he had brought his troops into Russia and fought the Battle of Stalingrad, there was no coming back from that. He had lost far too many troops. He would continue. So the Battle of Stalingrad is in February of 1943. He would continue fighting for another two years, but for all practical purposes, he was done. He was defeated. There was no way he could win from February 1943 onward. And uh, some of you might be people who watch the history show. I'll let you debate whether Hitler faked his suicide and made it to South America. They can talk about that another time. But, But he was defeated in the Second World War 
before he actually laid down his arms. He could not win. And so it is with Satan. Satan is a defeated foe. Again, we could look to the book of Revelation, chapter 12, verses 7 to 9, in his fight in his rebellion against God, he is cast out of heaven. Jesus would say of Satan that the prince of this world is judged. Speaking of Satan. And he was using what we could call a prophetic perfect at that point. Jesus had not yet gone to the cross, but the defeat of Satan was so certain at the cross that he could speak of it as already having happened. Satan is a defeated foe. I have a friend that writes hymns and writes some great hymns. uh, And one of the lines in one of his hymns is, speaking of Satan, he roars but cannot harm. Speaking of the believer. And ultimately, if we are in Christ, our soul is secure. He may roar against us, but he cannot ultimately harm us because Satan has lost. We could say as well that Satan will lose. We go to Revelation chapter 20. Chapter 20, verse 10. What is the, what is the fate of the devil, the one who deceives the whole world? He's cast into the lake of fire. And there the scripture says that he is tormented day and night forever and ever. Satan has lost, and the full realization of that is only a matter of time. And so my appeal to you, maybe you are in here and you have not trusted in Christ. There really are only two sides. There are many religions But there are only two sides. You are of your father, the devil, or you have God as your father because you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus. And my point here is for you who may persist in unbelief, Satan is going down and all who are with him are going down too. This is why you read right after it speaks of Satan being cast into the lake of fire in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. You read of the great judgment. And the scripture says that the dead are judged out of the books that are opened. And the scripture tells us that they're judged every man according to their works. And whoever is not found written in the book of life is cast into the lake of fire. In the American war between the states, Lee would surrender on April 9th, 1865. And you would think, okay, he's the leader of the Confederate troops. That's the end, right? Well, no. One Confederate ship captain did not surrender until November 9th, 1965, or 1865. So from April to November, he continued fighting. In fact, the last battle, the last actual battle, so this Confederate troop didn't engage in battle throughout the entire time, the last actual battle was on May 13th, 1865. The war was lost, but people continued to fight and die for a lost cause. What's my point? The battle is lost, 
if you're on Satan's side. Don't continue to fight and die for a lost cause. Lay down your arms. Trust in Jesus Christ. Turn from your sin and your self-righteousness to place your trust in Him, and you will be saved. Which leads me to my third point. Remember, the enmity of the enemy was the first point. Don't go down with the defeated is the second point. The third point is simply join Christ in His victory. Join Christ in His victory. We join Christ in His victory by faith. When we dress in His success, when we trust in Him, we are clothed with righteousness that He provides, the very righteousness which He Himself has earned on our behalf. This is a testimony even all the way back in the Old Testament, Isaiah 61, verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for He hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with a robe of righteousness. Read the book of Zechariah and the vision of Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. The same truth is communicated. We in ourselves are polluted and dirty by sin. We are stained. We are sinful. Our father Adam sinned and we ratify his choice every time we sin. We agree with him. We are sinners by nature and by choice. We're defiled by sin. God demands righteousness to stand in His presence. How can we who are defiled by sin stand in the presence of a holy God? We can't earn righteousness, for we have already been unrighteous. We must receive righteousness. And the truth of the Gospel is this, that when we trust in Jesus, we are then clothed in His righteousness. God made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. So we join Christ in his victory when we trust in him. We lay down our arms and surrender and come to him. I think as well we join Christ in his victory when we put on the armor of God and fight against our former master, that tyrant, the devil. You can read about the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6. The battle that we face is ultimately a spiritual one. And we must put on the armor of God that we can stand against the wiles of the devil. So we put on the armor of God. And as we who are Christ's people join with him by faith and join with him as we ourselves join the conflict, there's great hope. As we've already mentioned, Satan is a defeated foe. So there's hope. The hope is the full and final expectation and realization of that victory. Now, we may have different views on eschatology here, but we all agree that at the end of time, there's a new heaven and a new earth. All things are made new. All sin is banished. Satan is defeated. We live in that condition of glory forever. And what a day that will be. This is why, though, Peter says that we are to set our hope fully on the grace that is to come. Don't lose sight that that grace is coming. Don't lose sight that you are on the winning side. 
we read verses that seem almost strange to us, but they're true. Romans chapter 16, verse 20 says, the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. Imagine that. Now, remember the the oracle in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where it said that the serpent's head would be crushed and the heel of Christ would be bruised. We join Christ in his victory on his side and Christ through us bruises Satan, crushes Satan under our heel. Now this is not because of our awesomeness and how powerful we are. I'm not encouraging you to start a demon hunting ministry with the YouTube video that goes along with it. I'm I'm not encouraging that. I'm saying that as we are faithful to God, as we are faithful to Christ by the power of the Spirit, God does his work through us, and Satan is increasingly defeated in our life, and, brothers and sisters, as we storm the gates of hell, those gates give way before the power of the gospel. Remember, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's not talking defense. The gates are found on a city. The picture is storming those gates and those gates bursting open. Brothers and sisters, we are on the winning side. Don't forget that. Join Christ in his victory. I mentioned last time I was here The book of Revelation is such a great book. I I know we come to different conclusions on, on points, but don't miss the main point. Jesus is worthy. Don't give up. Don't give in. That's the point. Glory is coming for all who are on his side. Set your hope fully on that day. Don't give up. Don't give in. You're on the winning side story is told of a small town in Maine that was proposed for the site of a huge hydroelectric electric plant, which meant, of course, that in time a dam would be built and across the river and that entire town would be submerged. So when the project was announced, the people were given a, a fair space of time to relocate and you know, settle everything. But during those months, a very curious thing happened. All improvements ceased. Nobody was fixing potholes in the streets. No one was fixing the traffic lights that went out. No one was cleaning up in the park when the wind blew the trees over. No repairs were done to the buildings. No repairs were done to the sidewalks. Day by day, that town got shabbier and shabbier. And long before the waters came, the town looked uncared for and abandoned, even though the people had not yet moved away. And when asked about it, one of the people of of that town said, where there is no faith in the future, There is no strength in the present. 
Brothers and sisters, may we never be that kind of people. There is, in the words of the hymn that we sing, strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Why is there strength for today? Because there's bright hope for tomorrow. And so, brothers and sisters, Jesus has won. Satan is defeated. Remember the enmity of the enemy. Don't go down with the defeated. Join Christ in his victory. Set your hope, brothers and sisters, fully on that grace that is to come. Amen. To begin uh, the question, who is he in yonder stall? And the uh, men will, will all respond, that is, with the refrain. And then the men will ask the question number two, and then the ladies, number three, number four, men, and so on. But we all respond with the answer, "'Tis the Lord." Stand with me, please. 